Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm dandy. Happy to be talking about movies with friends. Uh, first up in controversies and controversies, Philip Roth's biographer has a new publisher. Following W.W. Norton's decision to pull Blake Bailey's 900-page book about the Philip uh, about Philip Roth from store shelves in the wake of accusations of sexual assault against the author, uh, that is Bailey, not Philip Roth. Skyhorse Publishing picked up the title and plans to have it back on shelves and ebooks and audiobooks, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, shortly. Uh, Bailey has strenuously denied accusations that he sexually assaulted anyone. Just want to put that out there for the record. Uh, one of the alleged victims, Eve Crawford Payton, uh, has strenu- strenuously asserted, on the other hand, that he did, writing a harrowing piece for Slate uh, in which she writes about how her former teacher held her down and sexually assaulted her while she said no and stop repeatedly. Um, the truth in this situation, or at least an approximation of it, will be a matter for the courts to decide, I think. Uh, the, the question before us has to do with Bailey's book and the tricky question of what to do with a work of art produced by somebody whose alleged actions we find despicable. Um, on the one hand, uh, there's a financial question here, one that arises since we have decided that every financial tr- transaction we make uh, has a moral consequence. Do you personally want to be responsible for putting money in the pocket of an alleged rapist? On the other hand, there's a question of the arts, right? Do we collectively feel comfortable diminishing our understanding of the art and artists that we know and respect or maybe shouldn't respect? Um, after all, this is a critically acclaimed book that has nevertheless been dinged for its handling of Roth's mistreatment of women. Doesn't Bailey's own behavior help shed light on that controversy? Doesn't it help us understand the broader culture in which Roth could operate with impunity for decades? Uh, and finally, there's a question of art and artist writ large. As Susan uh, Nossel of Pen America put it, thousands of books by bigots, misogynists, and miscreants could be removed from circulation. Now, maybe that's that's a good thing, or maybe it's a bad thing, but it is a question we have to consider because people we don't necessarily like make things we often do like. Um there are those who will step into the breach, at least as long as there's money to be made. You may remember Skyhorse as the publisher that picked up Woody Allen's autobiography after it was dumped by Hatchet, uh, when employees who claimed they were blindsided by the publication of the book complained to the company. Um, Alyssa, is, is this uh, a question of the market working properly, this Skyhorse picking it up after uh, W.W. Norton dropped it? Um, or should we be concerned about... Publishers dropping authors at the first sign of personal controversy at all. I mean, it's it's a weird, tricky situation, right? Um, I mean, I think that, you know, there's a dimension that we haven't discussed on the podcast so far, which is that W.W. Norton's initial decision to first um, suspend further printings of the book and then to pull it entirely was most was best understood as a bit of corporate ass covering. Um, one of uh, Bailey's alleged victims had written to the publisher uh, years before it was published to say, hey, this guy uh, not only sexually assaulted me, but sexually assaulted me at the House of a Prominent Critic. Um, Just thought that might be something you wanted to factor into your decision making. Um, And they never followed up. Um, They assumed that since she, the publisher said that since she, they understood that she had um, approached the New York Times as well, that the Times would essentially sort of perform their um, you know, human resources investigation for them and figure out whether these charges were true and that would sort of determine whether they did anything. Um, the woman ultimately decided at the time that she didn't want to participate in a story about Bailey. Um, and so 
you know, Norton's decision to do that ends up looking like an abdication of responsibility. Um, and so I think that this is best understood as an effort to kind of retroactively make up for a decision that they kind of gambled on and it has proved to be embarrassing and internally awkward for them. I, um, when the story first broke, I suggested that Norton um, should keep the book in print on the ground, mostly on the grounds that, you know, they made their bed, they should lie in it. And also that anyone who is interested in reading a 900 page biography of Philip Roth, of all people, is capable of understanding that um, men behave badly, that a lot of Roth's work was autobiographical, that Bailey, you know, according to stories he told widely himself, seems to have gained Roth's trust as his biographer after Roth fired a couple of other potential collaborators, in part by kind of playing into a sort of broy, hey, you can trust me to understand you in full and not judge you, um, kind of vibe with Roth. Um, and so I, I mean, I think that this the dis initial decision by W.W. W. Norton shows sort of very little trust for readers and very little understanding of the interest uh, of the audience for a book like this one, as well as a strong desire to avoid accountability. I thought um, and wrote at the time that they what they should have done was donate the equivalent of Bailey's advance to charities that do relevant work on um, sexual misconduct and then commit to donating their own ongoing profits from the book um, because they would end up giving far more money to charities that do relevant work than Bailey would actually receive, right? I mean, authors don't get the majority of the purchase price of their book. They certainly don't get money at all until they've earned out their royalty. Um, and so that would have done far more good than any bit of posturing could do. Uh, Norton um, ultimately did the first half of that. Um, but backed off the book because I think it was clear that the story was getting bigger and messier. And so I don't particularly have strong feelings about, you know, this particular publisher. I will be curious to see how many people actually read this book. But I think it is probably, you know, in the interests of an assessment of Philip Roth and a look at how society treats bad or alleged bad sexual behavior by prominent men, it is probably a better thing for the book to be available. Yeah, Peter, I mean, I the, the, the question for me is, all right, well, what is what's the public good that is served by making this book go away? Because that that the book is out there now. It's not like they fired this guy halfway through. As Alyssa said, you know, they, they were semi aware of what was happening. They pushed forward anyway. The book is out there. It's not like it's going to disappear from from the public consciousness. So what what would what is the actual, you know, public good of saying, ah, we're not going to publish this? And is there a public good in, in uh, the other publisher picking it up? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the thing is that they're not going to make it go away. Right. You once the book is published and out, as you said, it's out there. And it's not just that it's sort of out there in the public consciousness. It's out there and going to be available for someone to pick up and read somehow or another if they want, whether that's buying a used copy or if it becomes completely um, un uh, impossible to get a physical copy of the book, there are digital copies. And let's be like honest here, right? The, there is no way that a book like this, if um, especially in some, some ways, if taken uh, out of circulation by a publisher and, and not picked up, there's no way that it doesn't circulate widely on BitTorrent, on, you know, for uh, internet sharing platforms, whether legally or not. It's just going to be there for people to read if they want to read it. And so having published the book, 
I think there's no way to to pull it back and make it so that it is unreadable by people who uh, who are not committed, you know, uh, excuse me, the, to make it unreadable uh, by normal people. If anyone who is somewhat committed to reading it is going to be able to, regardless of whether it gets a second publisher or not. Um, so, you know, your question about the public good, I mean, what's the public good of any of this? What's the public? I don't think the, the public good is, is sort of, it's a nice question to ask. I think it's one that, um, that big corporations think that they think about. But the thing they were thinking about was their reputation. Like, like Alyssa said, this was ass covering. If they, if they were really deeply concerned about this book and this author and whether it was moral and good and right to put this out into the world, they could have made that decision before they put it out into the world. And they know as well as all of us do that once you put it out there, it's not actually disappearing the book. It's just that they're kind of saying, oh, wait, we released this thing. Uh, I guess actually at this late date, we want to take our names off of it. And maybe, you know, yes, there's a financial um, implication for them, uh, which is not trivial. You know, potentially a book like this is going to sell a lot of copies. And so they are saying, well, look, we're not going to take money from the sales of this anymore, at least. And that that's not nothing. But it's it's a corporation saying that, in some ways, it's a corporation saying they believe they made a mistake, and that's not nothing. Um, but it's also it's also mostly symbolic because the book is going to be out there, uh, whether or not it finds a new publisher, whether or not the first publisher continues to publish it, because that's, you can't, you're not going to be able to hide information that has already been widely distributed uh, at this, you know, in, in 2021 here. The internet makes that basically impossible, especially in the United States, but even in, even in China. And then look, I think there is a case to be made that at the time that W.W. Norton was informed of the allegation against Bailey that they could have done an internal investigation. Um, you know, maybe they could have figured out some of the allegations against him related to his time as a teacher. And they could have used that information to reassess whether Bailey was the kind of person or had the sort of vision to produce the sort of book that they wanted to publish you know they could have looked into you know how he had promised roth he would write about him and they could have decided if this was a book that they thought would be as sort of wide-ranging and definitive um as they wanted it to be and they didn't do that i mean there there are legitimate reasons to reevaluate um and to even reject manuscripts before they're published um that is so, a reasonable thing for a Alyssa, actually, to do. I want to ask you a question, um, and maybe I've missed this. So I, sure. this is this is genuinely, I, I don't know. Do they think that there's any problem with this, the manuscript, with the book itself? Or is it or is this entirely about his uh, off-page behavior? And again, I, I, I take what you were saying about the way that he connected with Roth by perhaps suggesting, hey, look, I get how you think about women because I am the same way. But beyond, <laughs> but like, that's, is is are yeah, they even I mean, I, is 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 the publisher even saying we think that this book was produced inappropriately or that there is no. inappropriate material in the book? No, I think that um, there has been a I think a strong critical debate about what you know sort of Bailey's method of ingratiating himself with Roth and what his you know what his own sort of significant body of writing 
um, suggest for how he views the relationship between men and women and what that means for his interpretation of Roth. There is not an allegation that he behaved unethically in producing the manuscript, um, that he, you know, was aided in problematic behavior by Roth in any way, that he did anyth anything untoward in getting access to Roth's papers. But I think there's been a, vi a vigorous and critically fair debate about, um, you know, the sort of completeness and range of vision of the biography, um, the extent to which it is, you know, can really be that, let me put it this way, there's been a, a debate about whether sort of despite um, Bailey's level of access to Roth, despite the fact that this is an authorized biography, whether or not this book is truly sort of comprehensive and kind of wide in vision in a way that a truly definitive biography of someone important should be. And that's, that's a legitimate conversation. Um, I mean, I think that's what a rich critical discussion of an important book does. It's also one that's Im impossible to continue having if the book is made not available. And this is this is specifically what I mean by the public good when yeah. I'm talking about this this book, because the issue, you know, the issue here is, OK, it's out. It's it's out there to be read. Um, I think that there I would argue as a reader, as a writer uh, and as a critic, that it is good and useful to have a book like this out there uh, that is either lacking or whatever uh, as far as the treatment of a certain subject goes. And and the, the, the idea here is that, you know, the reviews in the New Republic, I believe it was, in the New York Times in particular, was that, is that, were those the two most critical? I, f I forget. But there, there were two, there were two very critical reviews that looked at his, his, um, his treatment of Roth's uh, behavior towards women and specifically looked at some of the, the way those interactions have played out elsewhere in the world. And, and it, and it, it, I think it's actually a useful thing to have there to say, here is how a biographer can fail. Here's how a critic can fail. Here's how, uh, how it is important to, to have these discussions, um, with people or, or am I, am I just being, am I just being, you know, an no. overly sensitive critical writer here? No, I don't think that's, no, I don't think you're wrong at all. And, um, I mean, look, I think there are books that have done real material harm in the world, right? Um, you know, I, I would prefer if it was harder to find copies of the Turner Diaries or the Protocols of the Elders of Zion that lack, that, you know, that lack some sort of framing historical context and explanation of the text's sort of place in history and their origins. Um, just because I think it's useful to consider those things and those books have prompted folks to do crazy violent stuff over the years. But a biography of Philip Roth that insufficiently grapples with his misogyny does not cause that level of material harm. And even in those books that I find really noxious, I think they should be available to be debated. People should understand the subject material that anti-Semites and white nationalists, you know, find inspiring. Um, I, you know, I am the lefty person on this podcast, but I also incline dramatically towards keeping material available because your debates about it will always be incomplete if you don't have the text in front of you. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it just sort of seems like that's, I, I both agree with you and think that in some ways, the conversation around this particular book is frustratingly, like you're having the right conversation, Alyssa, I'm just afraid that absolutely no one else is. And because the conversation is not 
as far as I can tell, about anything in the book or anything about the way the book itself was produced. And if people had specific problems with the book, the material in it, the reporting methods, anything like that, I am not saying that it would justify removing the book, but that would be something very different than what we're talking about right now. And what, what has happened is people have decided that because of allegations, which again should be taken very seriously and seem quite bad to me, but because of these allegations, uh, Bailey shouldn't be allowed to proceed with making money. And I think that's what's, and I think that's as, that's as simple as the conversation is. And the conversation isn't about Philip Roth or, the, or his novels or the book about Philip Roth. It's just about off-page behavior. And that, it, 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 which if true is, uh, is, is stunningly awful and quite possibly illegal depending on what may or may not have happened. Um, but still, it's, it seems like, um, it seems like people have just sort of decided that the, the thing, it, the object itself, the object of production, right, of, of art, of, of biography, of, of writing, um, is totally irrelevant here because of allegations against the creator. Yeah, totally. And this is this gets to this gets to a point I was I was trying to make at the preamble, which is that look, I, I think we I think we suffer as a society when we reduce every transaction or every uh, artistic intake uh, to to a simple morality test. I I I, I it's it, it it's it's a thing that drives me very very uh, crazy about modernity. This idea that like. If you buy a thing and a fraction of that uh, purchase goes to somebody whose politics are bad or who has committed crimes or whatever, then then you are somehow implicated in that. And I, I know this is a thing I disagree with you, I think, a little, Alyssa. Um, uh, I know you, you have talked a lot about uh, ethical offsets and that sort of thing um, for for these sorts of purchases. But I just I, I, I find it. I find it weirdly chilling for some of for for some of the reasons that Peter is laying out here because again it, like we're not very few of us are talking about the actual book itself. Yeah, and it I is, yeah, I mean let me put it this way: I have always advocated the idea of sort of moral offsets as a way for people to manage their own consciences, right? And so, if you you know I originated this idea in writing about the lead up to the movie adaptation of Ender's Game um, when there was a lot of concern over Orson Scott Card. Uh, potentially profiting from ticket sales and said, look, if this is, if you are that, if, if your concern about the potential moral harm of giving any money to Orson Scott Card is so strong that it would prevent you from seeing the movie, you can both have access to the content and do more good by donating the equivalent of the full ticket purchase price, which is far more money than would go to card and that's true of you know book royalties of you know any any piece of art that is sort of not self-published and not you know solely self-made so i view this as sort of a a conscience management i'm not saying it should be mandatory but i certainly think that if people do view their consumption that way that there is a way to do more good in the world while still engaging with content and i think that's the better balance i also just think that this sort of way of approaching um uh, approaching publishing and ap approaching right the sort of the the production uh, uh, aspect, the production and distribution aspect of whether it's art or you know journalism or whatever, 
it gets very hard to maintain with any kind of consistency. I just sort of, uh, to go back to a familiar um, hobby horse on this podcast, how many of the people who think that it was right for this book to be, for the publisher to end publication of the book, would also had a, a problem with, um, with Disney and Mulan, right? Like, and furthermore, so Disney and Mulan, we kind of know what happened there because it's pretty clear what they were doing in terms of shooting fairly, uh, quite close to, and with the permission, uh, with the permission of communist party apparatchiks who would have been at least in some way involved in, you know, um, uh, in concentration camps. Um, but do we do we need to go through the Avengers Infinity War must have had 400 different names in the credits. Do we need to go through every single one of them and know every good and bad thing that every FX designer has done in their life, right? That the the guy who did the rotoscoping on 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 the uh, you know, on Josh Brolin's face one afternoon if he was really just if he was horrible to his girlfriend in college does that make the movie a movie Actually, that you can't that guy watch is active, that guy is active in his you know LGBT inclusive church okay and so also it's fine there puppies you go. on the weekends no, but it was it no. was the other guy the other rotoscoper who flashed the three on Jeopardy was there, that was the right and, and he, we, we have to cancel and him. again that's not in any way excusing or saying that what Blake Bailey did uh, was alleged to have done. If 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 the allegations are true, it's extremely bad. At the same time, at the same time, this seems like a standard that can't be enforced in any sort of or upheld in any sort of consistent way. No. Yeah. Uh, all right. So what do we think is the decision Two two part question here uh, is the decision to drop Blake Blake, Blake Bailey's book uh, a controversy or controversy? And is the decision to pick it up again a controversy or a controversy? I'm, I, there, there are two different controversies or controversies here. Uh, Alyssa, you go first. Uh, what W.W. Norton did was not just controversial, but even worse, it was incredibly dumb and insulting to the intelligence of readers. And Skyhorse's decision to pick it up is like mildly controversial, but probably ultimately the right thing to do. Peter. Both controversies. Uh, yeah, I think there. I mean, I, I agree with Alyssa that the the decision by Norton to drop it was a, a much bigger controversy than the much milder, you know, controversy to pick it back up again. Um, it the information wants to be out there, man. Uh, if you enjoy the show, and who does not enjoy the show, it's great. Uh, make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com, where we'll have a bonus members-only episode looking at Warner Media's merger with Discovery and what that means for the world of streaming and also home entertainment shows. I'm very excited for the J.J. Abrams reboot of Fixer Upper or whatever. Um, and now on to the main event. Those Who Wish Me Dead, now streaming on HBO Max, speaking of HBO Max, uh, and currently in theaters, Those Who Wish Me Dead is from writer-director Taylor Sheridan, who wrote Sicario and Hell or High Water, and wrote-slash-directed Wind River. He's also the creator of Paramount's hit show Yellowstone. All of which to say is that I was very excited a couple of months back when I realized that we would have not just one, but two Taylor Sheridan movies headed to our screens in the month of May. Uh, but then we saw the first, which was Without Remorse, starring Michael B. Jordan, and boy, was it not good. There was much remorse. And then remorse. you have this movie. Much remorse. Uh, and then you have this movie, which is about a fire jumper who is played by Angelina Jolie, and she has to rescue a young boy from a pair of hitmen, played by Aidan Gillen and Nicholas Holt. Uh, and it came out, and I wouldn't say it's bad. It's certainly not as bad as Without Remorse, but it's definitely not as good as uh, any of Sheridan's previous work. 
Despite featuring an A-list cast anchored by Jolie and John Bernthal, who plays a sheriff in Montana worried about his PTSD-suffering ex, uh, that's Jolie, obviously, Those Who Wish Me Dead is so remarkably generic that it feels as if a high-concept, mid-budget, big-star movie from 1996 traveled through time and wound up on my TV last week. Elevator Pitch, it's Firestorm meets The Client, starring Tomb Raider, solid three-quadrant movie, probably gonna be a hit. Um, and maybe, maybe it still would have worked if not for the fact that everything about it just feels half-sketched. Here's just one for instance. Tyler Perry is in this movie for literally two minutes in order to ensure that we know the MacGuffin of this movie is nothing more than a MacGuffin. There's no discussion of why he, master criminal, I guess, wants this kid dead. There's just some mutterings about politicians who will be implicated by, I don't know what. I don't know, but the kid's got to die. Um, just indulge me for one moment here. Tyler's, Tyler Perry's presence here is totally fascinating to me. He's on the screen, again, for literally like two minutes. Um, is there a Tyler Perry cut somewhere where he has like a real role where it like gets into what he's doing? Or was he just doing this as a favor to Sheridan? Did, did Warner Brothers just like bring a big bag of money to Tyler Perry's house and say, come to work on set one day, it's going to be great. Why is he here? What is happening? I don't understand. Peter... Uh, what did you make of Tyler Perry's presence here? That's the thing I'm most focused on. Uh, uh, but also, uh, what is just what is going on with this generic mishmash of a movie? I think actually you are correct to focus on Tyler Perry's presence because it is the single thing that explains what's wrong with this movie uh, most. Because this movie has a bunch of real talent attached to it and a bunch of good ideas, including some good ideas that made it on screen, in, like into the film. There's a, there are bits in this movie that I really quite like. But every single element of this movie is severely underdeveloped, but from the, from the sort of overall plotting, um, from the action sequences, from the kind of high concept, uh, you know, we're going to look at the world, like the, the, the secret world of, of fire jumping and, you know, um, uh, watching and watching fires from these big smoke towers. Uh, it is just nothing really. There are a bunch of good uh, setups in this movie, and there are very few good payoffs. And so, what I what I feel like is uh, there was probably at one point a longer, better developed version of this movie, or at least a longer, better developed version of this script, because this movie is short. It's less than an hour and 40 minutes, um, including the credits. And it just seems like there's another movie sort of lurking in the background. And this one got cut up for some reason, maybe because they finished principal shoot. I'm just speculating here, but it seems like almost like they finished principal shooting before the pandemic, couldn't figure out how to bring people back for reshoots, and just decided, okay, well, instead of the hour and 55 minute movie where you've actually got some explanation and the character arcs make sense, um, what we're gonna do instead is just chop 20 minutes out of this and put it out there because we don't think that reshooting in this environment is gonna make enough sense anyway. And so it just feels like a movie that starts from a very good idea and, in, and does in fact put a, some of those good ideas on screen. I mean, it's actually, it's refreshing to see a movie where the first 25 minutes or so are devoted almost entirely to character work and character setup. It's just that none of that setup pays off, especially given that the two um, 
the two lead actors, John uh, uh, Bernthal and Angelina Jolie, their characters have precious little to do. I mean, Bernthal in particular never makes like a, a, a pivotal uh, decision that really changes the plot. He is sort of, he just sort of hangs out and waits for stuff to happen. And his wife his, uh, is awesome and actually does much more in the movie than him. I don't object to what she does. I just object to the fact that Bernthal's there and he's so central to the story. And he just doesn't have very much to do. And that's even true to some extent of Angelina Jolie. And so you've got, you've got this movie with these characters who are nicely set up, who are sketched as real interesting people in a real interesting place. And then when we actually see them do stuff, it has nothing to do with all of the stuff, all, all of the good work that the first 25 minutes of, the, of this movie does. Yeah, Alyssa, one thing I noted in my review is that, you know, in previous Taylor Sheridan movies uh, like Hell or High Water, right, where you've got Chris Pine and Ben Foster, Ben Ben Foster, Foster. uh, and and Jeff Bridges, like those are those are movies where I could imagine those characters existing off the screen. They, They have they feel real and they feel lived in. And there's there's a pathos behind them. I know you weren't as big a fan as Wind River of Wind River as I was. But that's another movie where, like, there's there's real pathos there. There's there everybody seems like they have like a life that occurs either before or after the things we see on the screen. And in this movie, I was just like, I these these are these are like not even archetypes. They're just sketches. Yeah, and I think part of what is weird about this movie is both Wind Wind River and Hell or High Water. Um, have, you know, dramatic violent action, but dramatic violent action that is rooted in the realities of the West, right? I mean, the the crime spree in Hell or High Water is at least a part in part about, you know, saving a family farm from foreclosure. Wind River is about the murder of indigenous women. Like both of those movies trust the setting to be sort of inherently interesting, right? And part of what is extremely weird about this movie is that, you know, wildfires and firefighting are actually really interesting subjects. I don't know if either of you have read um, Norman McQueen's Young Men in Fire, um, but it's about the Man Gulch Fire, um, which is this huge forest fire um, in Montana in 1949 that killed 13 firefighters. And McLean went back and sort of meticulously using both um, sort of oral histories of what had happened there and science figured out why this particular fire became an inferno. It's a riveting book. It's really good. I highly recommend it. Um, But this is work that is sort of inherently interesting and that where the, you know, the sort of interest and impact of it is spreading from rural areas to, you know, the the coastal places where movies like this get made and watched. Um, I mean, if you look at what's been happening in California, you know, wildfires and firefighting have become these sort of really intense, interesting dramas that affect a lot of people. Um, And they were intense and interesting before they, you know, threatened Malibu. Um, And yet the movie, you know, why is that insufficiently interesting that it has to be dressed up with like a weird, stupid conspiratorial murder, right? I mean, it's not just that the plot is sort of unlived in and underdeveloped. It it shows a lack of trust in the setting in a way that is just very strange, given given Sheridan's best work, um, and also how essential the setting sort of nominally is to this story. Right? This is yeah. a, this is a movie that announces itself as being about a particular place, right? About uh, the West and about where these fires are happening, and then and then and this really irritated me. Most of it's shot 
very obviously on a soundstage, including a lot of the exteriors where you're supposed to, because, I mean, look, it's hard to like stage lightning strikes in real life. That is a complicated thing to shoot. But they did all of this stuff. All of these night, all the night shots are just very obviously like they've got a cabin in a warehouse somewhere, and somebody like brought in some sod, and then there's a backdrop that they've CG enhanced a little bit. It really, it like once you get into the movie, it doesn't look like they are shooting it in a real natural place in a way that's kind of jarring. And again, I mean, you have this sort of what should be like a great sort of action exchange line where Aidan Gillen's character, as he's, you know, about to be shot dead, says, I hate this place. And he said that a couple of times throughout the movie, but you never, it never explains why. And the movie never like builds up its sort of like, you know, sophisticated city assassins versus rural folks, like which could have been a really interesting twist, right? The, you know, actually like the city slickers are the assholes and, you know, the folks from... The, the the country are you know decent and enterprising. Yeah, it's payoff but to set up that isn't there, and this and the movie is all. forty last yeah. forty minutes are is filled with payoffs to setups that didn't happen right. or I mean, were at very best you can kind of tell where like where it was in the script, but, but like yeah, her axe, moment, for example, yeah. at the end should have yep. been like a big moment, and yet we never saw her using the axe yeah. before the, the like the very end of the second act, and right and like yeah. how how much more satisfying would that scene have been if we had just gotten a 90 second totally wordless sequence of Angelina Jolie like using the axe and like us seeing that it was her trusty partner that she always used right yeah. it, like in the first act yeah and the movie like instead we get this weird thing where she parachutes out of the back of a truck to show how crazy she is and that she's kind of depressed like the, yeah. the character work doesn't actually connect to the payoffs that come in a way that just makes this movie feel like feel like one person wrote the first act and then somebody who hadn't read yeah. the first act <laughs> wrote the third. Yeah. Yeah. But I really cannot get over the extent to which, I mean, you know, you have this character who's six months pregnant. She has been like threatened with a heated poker. Her, you know, her husband's been shot at um, and she's finally like killing the guy who's done all of this to her. And you know, you have that great exchange. Like, I hate this place. It hates you back. Right. Like, that's a, That should be a completely iconic like female revenge action movie line like that i mean that just it has the just the sharpness of the exchange the sort of hard consonants in it it you know the delivery and yet it has no context it means nothing right it's just i cannot i feel like in the sheridan stuff i have watched recently I see these glimpses of why I loved Hell or High Water so much, and it just feels like the guy has gotten lost somewhere along the way. It's weird. I have a I have a, a slightly weird theory that I want to uh, just outline very quickly before Sunny uh, gets in here. I think um, Allison Sawyer, who is John Bernthal's wife, is the is actually the main character of this story, and the movie just doesn't know it because if you had followed the uh, if you'd followed the story of the woman who went to survival school and her husband announces, oh, there's a friend coming into town under some slightly unusual emergency circumstances, her cop husband, right? And then she is the woman who has to fight her way through these, because she is the person who in fact does basically all of the real action work with the exception of one fight at the end that Jolie participates in. Uh, she's the main character. And if the movie had just followed her and her experience out West, it would have been a much better and more coherent film yeah i think that's right and it's also possible yeah that i mean there's also uh, the, there there i can think of 
I can think of a bunch of different ways to make this movie better. Uh, certainly, that that's that's one way. Uh, uh, another would be I see I I disagree with you slightly in the in the sense uh, Alyssa that that there's there's no reason for the you know action um, uh, killer subplot in the in the middle of all this I mean I, I I'm okay with the big high concept like we're gonna mix this and this and it's gonna be great uh, idea again it just it just feels it, there's just I, I don't care about any of these people yeah I just don't care about them you know. Yeah, I mean because because the only because the character work that I thought was good, like the John Bernthal meeting with his uh, sheriff boss, right? That little scene. Now it's kind of a ripoff of a, in, in the diner. Um, it, that scene is kind of a ripoff of a similar sequence in Hell or High Water, but it works pretty well. Like they've got the overcooked steak. There's a sort of a sense of a of real place and and people there. And then where does it go? Well, the Sheriff Boss just gets offed really quickly, like for for no real plot reason, except sort of to show that the killers are serious. And there's no sort of more, it never like we never come back to anything from that conversation in a real way, right? It it's just it's just sort of a bunch of pieces that don't flow together that have been stuck together, and it doesn't it doesn't. It just doesn't hang together. And I there, again, I think there are a bunch of good ideas here, certainly a, a bunch of great talent. And it's interesting how Taylor Sheridan has now clearly enough of a reputation that he's able to get uh, top-of-the-line acting talent, but he's not able to deliver here, and it just doesn't doesn't work in the end. Yeah. Uh, okay, so what do we think? Thumbs up or thumbs down on Those Who Wish Me Dead? Alyssa. Regrettably, thumbs down. Peter. Thumbs down, although I do want to give the first 20 minutes or so a kind of an almost thumbs up. That's not how this yeah, works. But, uh, it's a, it's, it's one, an overall. A thumbs up or thumbs down. I mean, it's one or one or the other. This is a one or zero situation. I'm gonna give uh, I'm gonna give it a zero then. It's da- it's a down. Uh yeah, it's a it's a thumbs down. Uh which again, sadly, I I am a big fan of Taylor Sheridan's previous work. This this was a this and without remorse, huge disappointments. Also, Sicario 2, Day of the Soldado. This is another big better than without remorse. It, this is oh, much sure, more watchable. Sure. Much better. It's far more competent and interesting um, to watch. At least the, the, the visual, you know, is not super dull and boring. All right. Uh, that is it for today's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode uh, on the Warner Media Discovery Plus merger. And make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. And if we don't grow, we will die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I will convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. Bye.